You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I am CJ Wolf with Healthicity. I'm really excited uh, today because we're starting a a three-part series on this topic. And our guest, and I'll tell you the topic in a moment, but our guest is a a colleague and a friend of mine from from many years ago, Mary Vizi. Mary, welcome. Thank you, CJ. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes. It's great to to see you again and talk with you again. We've had a lot of good interactions over the years. And and Mary, on the podcast, we we like our guests to have an opportunity to tell us a little bit about themselves, you know, how you ended up doing what you're doing, you know, compliance, research, whatever your topic is, Um, maybe a little bit about your background professionally. We'd we'd love to hear about that. Sure. Well, I'm a CPA by trade and um, I kind of stumbled into what I what, what I was doing at MD Anderson because I retired from MD Anderson in March of 2022. But um, I have always enjoyed doing um, audits and doing compliance work and really helping and partnering with organizations to really improve their processes, whether it is in healthcare or in retail. And so when I had the opportunity to work at MD Anderson, and start working on the clinical research billing side, I thought it was just a great opportunity to immerse myself in all the regulations that are surrounding clinical research, because it is fast, but also trying to help our colleagues, such as the faculty members, compliance, where, you know, I met you, to really help them understand, here are the regulations how do we put this into practice? Because it's really a partnership between so many different offices because it converges into a revenue cycle and, and, and research. And so it's kind of working with all those individuals to put the program together. And so that's kind of what I've been doing for the last 22 years and truly enjoy my time um, doing that aspect. Yeah. And, and, and as Mary mentioned, everybody, uh, Mary and I met when I was working at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And as you can imagine, a large, you know, prominent cancer center like that is doing a lot of clinical research, right? They, they want to cure cancer. They want to break down barriers. And I love what you said, Mary, because I feel the same way about compliance. You know, I come from a clinical background. But what I want to do is take the burden off of those clinicians as much as possible because I want them to do what they're doing, right? I want them to succeed in their true mission. Their true mission is not compliance, right? Their true mission is is healthcare and medicine. And in this context of clinical research, it's to get research done. And non-compliance can distract people from that mission. And so the more we can do to help things run smoothly, you mentioned revenue cycle, you know, to make sure things are financially viable. Um, those are all important um, Sometimes they seem like background and behind the scenes type of stuff, but if they go wrong, they can't achieve their, their real mission. Right. So I, I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's a conversion of not only the patient, but the, um, the clinician who is actually performing the research 
clinical operations, as well as revenue cycle, the clinical research organization itself, and then compliance really to really make sure that we're following the rules and, and not uh, putting the organization or even the patient at risk because there's exactly. two types of risk there. And so really kind of balancing all that. And so it was, it was a challenging position, but I truly enjoyed it because to your point, we had 5,000 clinical trials <laughs> running at exactly, one time. Right? And so it's, it's huge, but it was, it was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed my time there. Yeah, excellent. Well, we're so excited to have you for this three-part series. So everybody, we're talking about clinical research and the compliance surrounding that. And specifically, we're going to get into some of the billing aspects. Let me give you a, a quick preview of the three uh, podcasts we're going to do. Today, we're going to focus um, a little bit more just on an overview of clinical research billing and its impact on uh, the health system's revenue cycle. Mary alluded to that already. That'll kind of be our first podcast. Then uh, the second podcast we'll do is we're going to talk a little bit more about hiring staff and how to develop what you'll hear about today and, and next time, uh, Medicare, a Medicare coverage analysis. And we'll describe what that is, but uh, getting the right skill set. Who, who do you hire? How do you develop? people for that important aspect of clinical research billing. And then the third podcast, we're going to talk about lever leveraging the electronic health record uh, to bill for clinical trials with inpatient stays. So we're going to get, we're going to dive deep in some of these topics, but today, or I'm sorry, right now, this first one, we're going to start with just kind of an overview of clinical research billing. So Mary, just kind of a general question. We have a lot of our listeners are compliance folks, um, some coders, those sorts of folks. And some of them might not have experience at like an academic medical center or a huge research institute like MD Anderson was. So could you just maybe kind of give us an overview of what is, when we say clinical research billing, what are we talking about? Why is that a topic separate from other stuff? Yeah, it's really the act of ensuring that your charges are routed to the appropriate person. So whether it's the patient and or his or her insurance, or it's the actual study sponsor, because as you can imagine, there are many types, many investigational drugs and treatments that cannot be billed out to insurance. They do not meet the, the billing requirements for Medicare or any other, other insurance carriers. And so you have to really make sure that they're routed appropriately because you can't send out a bill. You have to let the revenue cycle people know that they that this is going to be paid for by the sponsor because you don't want to send a claim out the door that is actually being covered by the sponsor because now you're getting paid from insurance and you've gotten paid for that same service from the study sponsor. And so, as you know, and, and the audience knows, this is double billing and that is that is a really big no, no, as it relates to. The billing cycle, but it's also a huge risk for organizations involved in clinical research activities because you want to ensure that you're doing it right. And when Medicare comes in for their audits, they send their rack, MAC, uh, rack auditors or they uh, or the insurance carriers just wants to see some sort of um, do some sort of insurance uh, validation, I guess the claim validation process. They may see that they've already, you know, you've double billed there. And so that is a huge risk met with fines and penalties. And the OIG, the Office of Inspector General, as you guys know about, really monitors that aspect of it. And so they're always looking for um, ways to improve that process. And so that's kind of what I was over at MB Anderson was really looking at that process and ensuring that it was compliant at all times. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned a, a sponsor and some of our listeners may not be familiar kind of with research in general where, you know, some research, you you may have an external sponsor, which might mean, you know, like a drug company, let's say they're, they're, they're doing a trial on a new drug and they 
uh, grant a certain amount of money to help this trial run. And part of that money is to pay for a CT scan or a blood test or something that normally wouldn't be done in the normal process of care. But because it's a trial, they are, they agree to pay for it. But now you got to think, oh, wait, this CT scan, we can bill to insurance, but this one, the, the sponsor of the trial has already paid for, we can't bill that. Or this lab test, same type of concept. And so um, is that on, on par with what you're saying? Absolutely, CJ. That's exactly right. Because what all these drugs or treatments go through are different phases. So there's a phase, it could be a phase one, it could be a phase two study, a phase three. And then once you pass that phase three side, you usually apply for what they called a, um, a new drug development application where the FDA may decide that they're going to allow you to put it on the commercial market. And so therefore it is approved by Medicare, I meant by FDA to actually be um, something that you can sell to the general public. So that's kind of what every single drug that has is out there on the general marketplace has gone through is all these phases. And it, there's a group of individuals who really will shepherd those trials through those various phases to ensure that it's being compliant, because that's the other thing that the FDA and Medicare work very closely together about is that compliance aspect of it. And so to your point, you could have a you could have a pharmaceutical company sponsor, you can have a foundation sponsor, you can even have a federal government sponsor, because sometimes the federal government like NCI, NIH, the National Cancer Institute, the National Institutes of Health, they all sponsor trials. And so it just depends. And so when you have federal sponsors versus a private industry sponsor like a pharmaceutical company, as you can imagine, it's even tighter restrictions with the federal entities as opposed to those private industry industries. And so you really have to really understand who the funding source is first and then the requirements of the trial and then put all that into practice and working with ops and revenue cycle to make it happen. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know at Anderson, MD Anderson, we, a lot of cancer treatment, it's, it's drugs, but these same principles can apply in a broader uh, context, like for medical device. So I used to be a, a, um, com a compliance officer for, for an international medical device company and same types of things. They may sponsor a trial uh, because they want their device approved. And so it can be drugs, it can be devices, those, those sorts of things. So uh, good insights. Yeah, absolutely. And just since you brought up devices, that even that's a bigger round because Medicare wants to approve every single study for a device before you can actually bill and you can enroll any patients on it. So they are actually have a little bit more of a uh, rich, um, requirements that need to be done before you can actually begin enrolling patients and treating patients with those devices. They, Medicare wants to sit, look at that study and ensure that it meets all of their covered um, requ coverage requirements for billing and then tell you yes or no. Do, are they going to allow you to bill for that particular study? Uh, in my tenure at, at Anderson, we didn't have many device studies. Up. Most of ours were really the treatment trials where you're looking at an investigative new drug. But we did have some devices and we probably had maybe one or two that the federal government uh, Medicare came back and said, nope, can't bill for it. So then we had to find another study sponsor. And, and figure out what to do with that study. <laughs> so when you say that, that Medicare or the government looks at it, are you submitting like a protocol? Is it to the, the Medicare administrative contractor for your region? Are you submitting to a national office, if you know about those things? Yes, it used to be that it was regional. And so you would send it to your local MAC. But um, now since, 20, since 2019, 
Medicare says, I want to do it myself. And so uh, we were kind of, oh, my goodness, this is going to put a large hold on our studies because it's already a 30 day hold on that study. Right. And so we're thinking, oh, my God, this is going to really bog down our trials. And they didn't. They I mean, they were really quickly turning those around within the okay. same 30 day cycle time frame. But now it's really Medicare looking at it, um, that packet. So it's really an attestation packet that you provide to them. So you send them a letter saying, here's what um, I'm trying to do. Here's the study documents, the coverage and analysis, the IRB approval letter, the level of risk associated with that you know, particular device, whether it's going to be significant or insignificant risk to the patient, and then okay. Medicare makes their decisions from there. I see. Excellent. That's great to know. Yeah. So, um, so clinical research billing, it's going to somehow integrate or fit into a health system's revenue cycle. So you may be doing trials, but at the same time, you're treating patients maybe with more traditional uh, or, or uh, kind of standard of care type of things outside of research, but the same CT scanner is being used for both or right, the, the same infusion clinic is being used for both. So somehow you have to integrate the research activities into your normal operations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I can tell you the hardest part of that process is communication <laughs> because technology helps you do that. You know, you have clinical trial management systems are what in the industry calls a CTMS. And so that helps manage the study. And then your electronic health record really manages the patient. So if you use integration, which I'll talk about in one of the other podcasts, how you leverage that integration, really, um, if you use integration for that, it really helps to alleviate the, pro- the burden of not only the clinician, but his or her study teams, because oftentimes they delegate their day-to-day functions to either a research nurse or a study coordinator. So it really helps keep, pe- keep people on task and really helps to the charge uh, helps the charge review process and ensure you're routing your charges correctly because that's kind of the crux of everything, right? And so that particular integration from the clinical trials management system, you know, marrying the study and the patient together is where you can leverage technology to really help that process and really takes a lot of the risk off of the health health, uh, care system's revenue cycle. And then it also usually one of the electronic health records have gotten to where they actually will flag or they have like banners that say this is a research patient. So like in our case, ours was a pink banner. And so when you saw a pink banner, you could click on it and you knew which study they were on. And so this way, the revenue cycle people, when they're processing that claim, they see the pink banner for that particular patient. They're going, wait. This is a research patient. Let me double check, make sure we're doing this right. And that applies for the coders. Um, so that coding department, the financial clearance center can see this information, as well as the claims processing groups. So that, you know, that really helps a lot. And then, of course, denials management may happen, may have to happen. And so one of the things, one of the frequent questions we got was when insurance was denying it. Is the sponsor really covering this or did we really need to send this out to insurance? Yes, you needed to send to insurance. We need to go through the denial process and figure out how to mitigate that for that patient if we could. Right. So that's kind of how it works. Again, the biggest piece is the communication, which a lot of technology has really helped alleviate. Yeah. So you're somehow flagging patients and then hopefully those services get flagged so they can be processed and reviewed according to whatever the the protocol or the, we're going to talk later in the other podcast about a coverage analysis to decide, oh, this one's covered, this one's not, this one's here, this one's not. Exactly, exactly. And so oftentimes organizations um, have a centralized group 
that will look at those charges before it gets to the claims processing side. So it kind of makes a stop, if you will, within that group to within that uh, charge review group for research purposes and, and making sure that it's routing the, the right way. Now, if you're leveraging technology, you know, to its maximum, that group is only looking at exceptions where the charge router couldn't make a decision or someone upstream didn't do their job. They didn't flag the study um, or the patient appropriately. And the charge router looks at it and goes, wait, I don't understand what to do with this. And it routed to that queue. So we leveraged that a lot, um, which helped because of course, with our volumes, we needed all the technology solutions we could get. Otherwise you're throwing manpower at a lot of that stuff. And, you know, manpower really bogs down the system because one of our biggest concerns was holding a charge too long where you're missing filing deadlines right. or you're actually slowing down that revenue cycle um, because the revenue cycle has a quick turnaround. You know, they want to get those charges out the door. They want to get those claims processed, but they also want clean claims. So you're That's kind of right. balancing all of that to make sure it works properly. Yeah. And I can imagine like at Anderson, I know the volumes were high, but yeah. let's hypothetically talk about maybe a, a a health system or a, a community hospital that may be involved in a few trials. Um, but that's not like their bread and butter. That's not what they do, you know, day in and day out. I can imagine somebody might be on a trial for maybe cancer, but then that same hospital is where they get treated when, if they get, if they fall off uh, a ladder and break their arm, uh, the breaking of the arm, they go to the emergency room or whatever. That's not a part of the trial. And so you, you may flag the patient, but not everything the patient has done is associated with that trial. Is, is that something that you also saw at Anderson or not so much? Oh, absolutely. We saw that all the time. And so what our um, electronic health record did was divide the charges into three different buckets. They would either, it was either related to the study, billable to inpatient or insurance, meaning it's a covered service. It's under that umbrella of the IRB approved protocol, which is the institutional review board's approval of that particular study, or it's below, it's related to the study, the sponsor had agreed to pay for it. The last bucket was not related at all, just something to medically treat the patient to your, so to your point, our patients came in maybe with pneumonia or neutropenic fever, depending on, you know, what their, what type of cancer we were treating. We brought it that to that bucket because the, pa- the provider was actually trying to treat the patients where, so they could actually become healthier and get them back to medical stability. And so that medical necessity was met for that requirement. And so those those type of charges, we would route those over to billable to the insurance, but not related to the study at all. And so our claims department would realize, oh yeah, that's not related to the study. Let me send that out the door really quickly and let insurance cover it. And so that's you know the three different buckets. And most electronic health records have those three different buckets where you're able to differentiate. Because to your point, when you're talking about a smaller community hospital or just a hospital that has a very diverse clinical research portfolio, not just oncology, but say cardiac, uh, cardiology, say diabetes, you have to be able to be flexible because at the end of the day, it's still about treating the patient and really making sure that that medical necessity is in place to treat appropriately treat that patient. So those are the things that, you know, electronic health records are really good at is just now we're meshing in clinical research and moving in clinical research into that process. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. (laughs) So, so let's kind of talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges that um, clinical research billing um, will bring an organization's face that participate in clinical in 
clinical research? What, what kind of some of these big challenges that you've seen over your career? So the big ones I saw was a lack of understanding of the study requirements at the beginning. So oftentimes, um, especially in academia, faculty members are so eager to take on every single trial that comes across their desk and not realizing that operationally it doesn't fit into their, their organization's existing structure. And so really stopping to do that feasibility assessment, not only for regulatory purposes, human subjects protection purposes, really also for financial purposes and to make sure that financially we can support this study or we're going to get enough money to support this study. And then clinical operation wise, can we really do this? And so that was one of our bigger challenges to really, you know, kind of take a pause and really make sure that it integrates there because what we were seeing was my team would get the coverage analysis, get the study and prepare the coverage analysis, start developing the budget. Then we start asking questions and realize, oops, this doesn't fit into our clinical operations side. How do we fit this round peg into this square hole? <laughs> and so we'd have to kind of put that study on pause and maybe try to work to redesign some of the requirements to make sure it fits into clinical operations easily um, or just say we can't do this study. The, you know, then the complexity of clinical research studies, you know, as we talk about maybe CAR T-cell infusions and that complexity mm-hmm. around inpatient stays, which, you know, we are going to talk about in one of the later podcasts about those requirements, that added to the complexity. So really, just really tenants, really take a hard look at the study and talk with the sponsor before we agreed to actually do the study was one of the biggest challenges we had. As we moved through that process and got past that feasibility side, the other large process, the issue we saw was budgeting, making sure that the study sponsor understood that billing requirements from Medicare dictate that this particular service isn't covered. You're going to have to cover it. That negotiation sometimes was really hard because study sponsors had in their head that, oh, yeah, that's that can be medically necessary. Well, yes, but frequency limitations are hit right. for the study. Right. And so you want monthly CT scans. I can't do monthly CT scans because insurance won't cover monthly CT scans. And right. so those type of discussions we had. And that was a big challenge, not only for the study sponsor to understand, but also even our faculty. Because our right. faculty went to medical school to treat a patient. They didn't go to medical school to understand insurance billing. So we had to introduce them to not only outpatient billing, so that ambulatory setting, but also the inpatient setting. Because as you know, those those requirements are a little bit different when it comes to inpatient billing versus outpatient billing. Yeah, to me, it so seems just like balancing not- all that was hard for us. Yeah, it seems like you have to set the stage with all the players, even before you get into the details. Maybe an analogy is... Because I deal a lot with docs that will say, well, I'll, I may be doing a medical necessity review outside of research and say, well, you, you can't do that CT scan for, for this diagnosis. And they'll say, well, what do you mean I can't do it? Well, you can do it, but Medicare might not pay for it. So because they'll say, well, Medicare, te- Medicare can't tell me what I can and can't do. I'm practicing medicine. You're right. You can do it. But you might not get paid for it. And so if, if you've got deep pockets and if you have a willingness to pay for these things yourself, oh, wait, wait, oh, no, I don't want to pay for it. You know, and so it's like, oh, you got to differentiate between the difference between what you are allowed to do as a physician and taking care of patients. And that's appropriate. And Medicare, nobody can really tell you what you can and can't do. That's the state licensure. What tells you what you can order. But 
the state doesn't promise you that Medicare is going to pay for it. The state okay. doesn't promise that a payer is going to pay for it. So to your point, you have to look at all that stuff up front because this might be a great academic exercise or a great research idea. But if no one's going to pay for it, is the institution willing to pay for it? Um, are you doctor willing to pay for it yourself? Um, and then, then, oh, wait, maybe it's not as important as, as I thought, if no one's willing to pay yes. for it. <laughs> yes. And that was one of, and I'm glad you brought that up because that is another big challenge that every organization who is trying to blend finance and clinical research and clinical ops together is that just disconnect between language. So from our perspective, routine care, we're following what Medicare says. And then, you know, they often try, you know, try to summarize that with standard of care. And if a provider's standard of care is very different sometimes from routine care as covered by Medicare and any other insurance carrier. And so making sure that we differ- differentiate it between those two for the provider. To, to So to your point, CJ, telling them, yes, you can order this test. We just won't get paid for it. So how do we plan to cover for it? Because I'm not trying to tell you and dictate how you're going to medically treat that patient. I'm not I'm not I'm not dictating medical practice. I'm just telling you financially we won't get paid. And so that's the difference between those two. And so once we were able to make the faculty understand the difference between standard of care and routine care. It, it was a lot easier conversation to have versus you can't tell me how to treat a patient. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it's that approach. And, you know, I can imagine that you probably had some proactive training and education because you've got all sorts of, uh, you know, rotating physicians and residents, yes. fellowships, all this sort of stuff. And, and just some general, you know, research training to say, look, here's scientific research, here's keeping the patient safe, and then here's the finance piece, Um, you know, and nobody has a a blank check that's been signed that you can just do everything without worrying about money. Money may not be the most important thing, but it's pretty important, or otherwise you can't do any of this. Exactly, exactly. And right before I retired, I actually introduced the concept of of educating the faculty on the revenue cycle. And then bring clinical research on top of that, because if they understand the revenue cycle, then they can understand some of the challenges we're facing when the finance team says, but I can't bill it. I can't get reimbursed. You know, I'm not telling you we can't do it. I just can't get reimbursed. So who's going to cover that? And so when they see those differentiations on that Medicare coverage analysis, they understand, oh, this is a billing issue, frequency limitations, coverage limitations, whatever the case Well, great. This has been, I think, a really good kind of introductory uh, podcast. Any last minute thoughts on this introduction topic of kind of clinical research billing? I, we're going to do a couple more. Um, and so I want our listeners to be prepared for that. Anything, any last minute thoughts on, on this particular? Topic? Yeah, I just want to over, I just want to emphasize again, the, the need for communication, despite the fact that you may have cutting edge technology sitting out there, you still have to have effective communication between the faculty, his or her study teams, that finance, central finance team that's working on it, the revenue cycle and clinical operations, because these folks are going to see the, the downstream impacts. And so they need to be prepared to receive the, that either that study requirement, that patient's treatment plan, or the, or the claims. They need to understand what they're seeing um, when that ha- does happen. So communication is really is really key here. Yeah, and maybe one last question, Mary. Um, 
I noticed um, on social media, professional social media, that you're going to be doing a, a, a kind of a boot camp uh, to this topic. Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about that, when that is, how people can learn about it, what it's about, why you decided Absolutely. to Absolutely. You know, and I'll, I, can, I will explain in our next podcast around the Medicare coverage analysis and that skill set. There's a, uh, is a three-day boot camp offered through the University of Houston, and it's going to be in-person as well as virtual class sessions. So there's going to be several uh, sessions offered starting in September. And the three-day boot camp is designed for individuals who are interested in the clinical research finance career, but also maybe individuals who are just interested in the financial management of a clinical research study. And so that boot camp is designed to help them understand that because there is a big knowledge gap around that financial management. Great. So for those who may be listening to our podcast months later, that's September of uh, 2022. Um, But, you know, my guess is it'll be a success. And my guess is you'll probably do more of them. So I think University of Houston uh, is is a good place to look. And and in the podcast notes, we'll include Mary's uh, contact information if if she's comfortable with that, um, so that people can reach out to her uh, anytime when you're listening to this. So thanks for for telling us a little bit about that. And we'll learn more probably about the details in our next podcast. So everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Compliance Conversations with with Mary Vesey. And uh, we will talk to you uh, next time. Keep in mind, we've got two more podcasts in this series. Thanks, everyone. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, We see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.